as a metaphor for death or for this wild ravenous creature who's desperate to like swallow them up into nothingness. The ocean roaring underfoot is a great one. It's kind of nipping at their heels. They can always hear it. It is eternal. It's eroding the sand. It's eroding the piers and it's going to get them one way or another. I think that Horace McCoy takes something that is so beautiful and he turns it into this dark, looming, menacing force. Welcome, Book Society. Denise Hamilton is the author of the Eve Diamond series of crime novels, which are national bestsellers. She has won or been shortlisted for LA Times Best Book of the Year. That's not a win. That's just a thing they said about her book. An Edgar Award, a McCavity Award, an Anthony Award, a Willa Carter Award, and my personal favorite, the Creasy Dagger Award, which is awarded by the UK Crime Writers Association. And that is a party I want to get invited to. Denise Hamilton was on the staff of the LA Times for 10 years, where she wrote about all kinds of interesting stuff. The LA Times, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, is the best newspaper in history. And the book that Denise Hamilton picked for us today is They Shoot Horses, Don't They? by Horace McCoy. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the freshman running back for the USC football team. But it's not that Horace McCoy. We're talking about Horace McCoy, the author and screenwriter who wrote this book in 1935, based on his experience as a bouncer at one of these places. We'll let Denise explain what these places were. It is a fascinating book. I had absolutely never heard of it. There is zero chance that I would have encountered it in my life without you recommending it. I'm so glad you did. So Denise, why did you pick this book? It's one of my favorite books about old Los Angeles. I picked it also because it is way lesser known than books like The Black Dahlia or Day of the Locust or The Postman Always Rings Twice. But I think it's such a devastating portrayal of Hollywood, poverty, 1930s depression era, marathon dance contests, LA. It's just such a grim, fatalistic, but wonderful book. It's also super short. It's about 130 pages. It's really more of a novella. It's so simply written that a fifth grader could read it, although probably they would get way too depressed. But there's just a beauty in the simplicity of it and the characters. They're so down and out. There's not a whole lot of crime in it, and yet it's all about dead-end lives and crime and hope, and it's just an amazing book. I mean, what did you think of it? I thought it was fantastic and weird, and I think, before we go on in the discussion, for people who haven't read it, can you explain what is a marathon dance contest? Marathon dance contests were popular in the Depression era in the 1930s. People who entered them were very desperate for money. They were exactly what it sounds like. You had to dance with a partner until you collapsed, day and night. You got 10 minutes of rest every two hours. And it was kind of a circus extravaganza, or there was a carnival atmosphere. And people would pay money to come and watch these dancers who were just dead on their feet and drooping by the time they got to the second week of the marathon dance. And so this was day and night. So it's about a young man and a woman who enter a marathon dance contest because they're desperate for money. They both live in Hollywood and they're trying to make it as extras or to break into the industry. The marathon dance contest is held on a pier in Santa Monica or Venice, somewhere along the beach of LA. 
And it's at the end of the pier overlooking the Pacific. And it's this old wooden ballroom. And they can hear the waves crashing and roaring underfoot. It's all about the different couples in the marathon dance contest and the manager, the barker who's announcing things and all the creepy sponsors and lecherous men and lecherous old widows who hang around and are always trying to compromise everybody. And yes, there's murders and there's kind of a sleazy bar adjacent to the ballroom where mobster types hang out. And it's all about the desperation of these two people. It's narrated by the young man. But the main character is really the girl. Her name is Gloria. And she's this faded, anemic blonde who just wants to die. She keeps saying she's given up. One of the reasons that she encourages the boy to join her in the dance competition is because she says, well, you know, Hollywood people come to these things to watch. And maybe we'll meet a producer. Maybe we'll meet a director. And so that's another carrot that is held out to these poor, desperate people to take part in the dance marathon. Yeah, this book had everything. So you're a native Angelina. I came here for the biz, like most people. I did not have as tough a time of it as these characters, but this actually started to seem like a too true metaphor for me. You know, that you come to Hollywood and the dance marathons, just to be clear, I think this one went on for 879 hours. So that's 36 days. I did some research and they did this in real life. And I think the record is something like 1600 hours from January to March. And people would come just for the spectacle of watching you suffer. The idea of getting inside of the heads of someone who's doing it, being an Angelino who's trying to make it in the business and thinking, oh yeah, that someone's going to see me. I mean, this is just a metaphor for my own career. I can't tell you how many things I did because I thought maybe someone was going to see it. And it's always an empty promise. This is a noir novel. Would you say that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am familiar with the genre of noir mainly from its parodies, but can you explain to us what the genre is, how you would describe it? What are some of the touchstones in that world? It's kind of the seedy underbelly of society. It's shining a spotlight on corruption and the seven deadly sins and people making bad choices, lust and love and murder that's why I just love this book because it just encapsulates everything in so few pages. It really reminds me a lot of Day of the Locust by Nathaniel West, which is a lot better known. But there's the same sense of desperation to make it, just life weariness. And everyone around these people are trying to get their hooks into Hollywood, and yet they'll never make it. And everyone's from somewhere else. And they've come from Arkansas or Texas. They've come from broken homes and lecherous uncles and dead parents, and they've hitchhiked out to L.A., to Hollywood, to make it. And by the end of each of these books, that's not going to happen. I think those books, if you read them together, boy, you're really going to need to take some ecstasy or something once you finish reading them and go for a big hike outside because they're very humanistic, but they really go into the depths of human psychology and the worst things that can happen to you. And so I think that They Shoot Horses, Don't They? is also very much of a social commentary or a social criticism. Why are people paying money to see these poor dancers drag themselves across the floor half dead? Why are 
corporations, what they call the sponsors, Gloria's desperate to get a sponsor. Why are they giving clothing and T-shirts and sweatshirts that have the corporate insignia on them? Is that really a good selling point? These half-dead dancers schlumping across the floor. There are all the people around them, the organizers of the marathon, they're all preying on the desperation of these people. So to me, it hits all those noir elements. What's interesting, though, is that there isn't really a romance in it. The guy says he's not in love with Gloria. He admits that. It's not his girlfriend. It's not his ex-girlfriend. He doesn't want her as a girlfriend. She's just a friend, and he wants to help her. And that's what leads to the terrible scene at the end. Yeah, they're just kind of doing something to have something to do. They go on an uninspiring date and then just decide to enter this contest. And that seems unrealistic, I think, unless you've dated in Los Angeles. I can totally imagine this happening in real life. If you don't have much going on, why not do some weird thing that takes 30 days and will give you free food and some exposure? Well, and also they want to win because they want the money. But she ends up having some little dalliances with various people who she thinks are going to help her. During the marathon, he sees her like sneaking out from someone's area, but he's not interested in that. He wants to be her friend and she's not interested in sleeping with him because there's nothing that he can do for her in terms of furthering her career. At least there is one big thing he can do for her at the end, but that's a different story. Yeah. It's so dark. Well, it's right at the beginning, actually. I think we can spoil it, but it starts with a murder. One of the things I loved about this book, and this is really just a side note, was the way he just used italics to be his voice from the future talking about the events in the past that he's narrating. And it's such a strong device. I don't think I'd ever seen that before where he'll just go in and out of what he's narrating. So I thought that was a really clever device. But it's so dark. As a New Yorker who has moved to Los Angeles and has grown to love it, I mean, I moved out here wanting to hate it and expecting to hate it. I think it's important to acknowledge that all of these dark things that we're talking about, about Los Angeles and the way that it exposes the darkness of the soul and the crudeness of humanity are 100% true. And this city does do that. And I think it's known primarily in the public consciousness for these two things of this noir darkness and then glitzy Hollywood vapidness. And those are definitely two things that exist in Los Angeles. But what do you think it is that people don't see that make people love to live here? Because I don't know anyone who lives here who doesn't love it. Well, the weather. I mean, it's a beautiful place to live if you're not stuck on the freeway. You've got the powder white sands and the beaches that go on forever. You've got the snow-capped mountains, the palm trees, the funky old architecture in old Los Angeles, and the streets that change, you know, from street to street and house to house, whether it's California Craftsman or Spanish Bungalow or Tudor, weird palaces. It's a little bit like New York, that it's a melting pot of so many different cultures and religions and people. I think people love that about it. So it's a very multicultural place. It's become more so than in Raymond Chandler's time when he was writing. There was one line that just haunted me about the book, and it's the main character says, I used to love the ocean. I used to love to come down to the Pacific and see the ocean. He goes, I can't stand it now. If I never see it again, that'll be too soon. And of course, that's because they're stuck inside this ballroom where it's dark, day and night, dancing in front of these crowds and being exhorted by the master of ceremonies dude. And the ocean is always pounding 
underfoot. I think that it was a fantastic idea. They had dance marathons everywhere, not just on the edge of a pier overlooking the Pacific Ocean, but as a metaphor for death or for this wild, ravenous creature who's desperate to like swallow them up into nothingness. The ocean roaring underfoot is a great one. It's kind of nipping at their heels. They can always hear it. It is eternal. It's eroding the sand. It's eroding the piers and it's going to get them one way or another. And so I think that Horace McCoy takes something that is so beautiful, the ocean at the end of the continent, and he turns it into this dark, looming, menacing force. That's just one of the tiny little things. It's interesting because the book doesn't take you on a tour of Los Angeles. It opens with Melrose. He's walking down Melrose, and that's when he runs into Gloria. And then there's a mention of Western Avenue. So we know exactly where that is if we live in L.A., mid-central city. The rest of it takes place inside a ballroom, pretty much. And so it's such an L.A. novel, and yet it doesn't take you to a lot of the same places that Postman Always Swings Twice or The Big Sleep or some of those other L.A. novels take you. That's a great point about the ocean and the central metaphor, because Los Angeles is a beautiful monster in some ways. The way that it's presented in the book and the way that the dance marathon is presented is so prescient of the way that we do entertainment now that it almost doesn't matter what people are looking at as long as they're looking at it. That's what the state of our discourse has been reduced to. And McCoy saw this coming in 1935. And there's even a scene where Robert, the main character, is talking to a movie producer about the film that he wants to make. He calls it a two-reeler, which we would call a short film. And he says he wants it to be just about a normal guy going through his day. And the way he describes it, essentially what he wants to do is make a reality show. Uh Well, in some ways, if it was done today, they would just have the film cameras on the marathon and then they'd edit it down to like half hour segments of every day. I mean, it is a reality show. It's a reality show before there were reality shows. It's like the squid game thing. People are dying. It's kind of horrifying that one of the contestants, I forget her name, I think her name is Ruby. She's like five months pregnant and she's doing this because they're like desperate for the money. The other thing that was so interesting to me was how Horace McCoy describes some of the characters. Everyone is skinny. Everyone is gaunt. Everyone is anemic looking. Everyone is recovering from illnesses. It makes you remember that back then it was like people didn't get enough to eat a lot of times. Or if you had like a really bad flu, there were no antibiotics. So you have these people who not only are desperate to make it, but they maybe don't have enough food in their bellies and they're sick and they're recovering from various illnesses and they've had really crappy childhoods. And so they come out here and the stakes are higher, I think, than if they had stayed in Texas or Arkansas and married the girl next door and had some boring job. But they come here because they think they're going to hit it big. It's like a gambler or something. You were asking about L.A. and, you know, what is it about L.A.? For one, I think, you know, Hollywood just creates this city of illusions. It's like this fantasy. It's like this Oz. You drive down the street and you hear gunshots and you're not sure if there's a shootout happening or there's a movie being filmed. I've done this, too, where you stumble onto something and you think it's real and then you realize, oh, no, it's a movie shooting. And so L.A., Hollywood, has this sense of being kind of caught 
in amber somewhere between reality and illusion and fantasy. And you're never sure like where your footing is because everything is so kind of changeable and permeable. And then the light is so bright, the shadows are so dark. And so that creates just this intensity. And I'm sure you've had promises made to you by Hollywood people. Oh, we love it. We're going to buy it. It's going to be amazing. And then you never hear from them again. So it's just a very strange place to live. And I think it was that way 100 years ago. And Horace McCoy captured it. He had a sympathy for the poor working stiffs. Or they weren't even working. They were trying to work, trying to get a job. Yeah, it was the Great Depression. So people were hungry and the world was not as advanced as it is today. And also there was no money. And at that time, California used to be called an island on the land, Southern California, because now we have a lot of ways to get in and out and there's highways and trains. But back then, you know, there was a road across the Mojave that went over the Chiraico summit. And, you know, if you got a flat tire, you're maybe going to die. <laughs> and unless you had a plane, it was really hard to get in and out of here even. And so moving from somewhere in Arkansas or Texas, where these characters are from, you're really leaving relative civilization to come to this new place. And one of the things I've always felt about Los Angeles is that the attraction and the repulsion come from the same thing, which is that there's really no rules here. And you can just do whatever you want. And if Denise Hamilton, tomorrow morning, you called me up and said, hi, you know how I was a writer of crime novels? Well, now I'm a film director. I've got this project going. I would just roll with it and believe you and assume that it was fine. There are not many cities where you can just decide to change your life on a whim and even your contacts and friends will just go with it. But LA has that. I think that this is what seduced the characters in They Shoot Horses, don't they? Because back then, you could get discovered at Schwab's ice cream parlor. Hollywood was a much smaller place back then. I've read memoirs of people where they would see James Dean shopping at the local market at two in the morning, or Marlon Brando. I mean, movie stars didn't lock themselves away on Broad Beach in Malibu or up in Bel Air the way they do today. Although Gloria does say at one point, oh, she's looking out the window and she goes, that's Malibu up there. That's where the movie stars live. But nonetheless, it was possible to get discovered on the street in a way that it's just not today. Today, it's just a corporate machine. Yeah, it's different for sure. I guess you can get discovered on social media, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, on social media, maybe Gloria would have a better chance because she wouldn't have to move too much. It's interesting that Horace McCoy never really describes her very much. We know that she's older. I mean, he says that in the beginning. He says she's too blonde and too little and too old. And that's kind of the description we get about her. So I've been trying to kind of evoke a mental picture of what she looked like. There's this faded blonde that is maybe teeny and past her prime. But I don't think it would necessarily be a bad thing to be too blonde today. <laughs> no, there might not be such a thing. The only description was that she was, I think he said ugly or maybe plain or some synonym for not particularly attractive. And one of the things that happens in any big city, not just Los Angeles, is people come here and they're the best or prettiest or most X in the small community they come from. And then they realize that they've gotten to the big city and everyone is the best, whatever, from wherever they came from. It's always somebody more glittery than you. And I think that's where those hopes that get dashed, I think that's the kind of nexus where he sets this story. And of course, meeting Gloria was the worst thing that could ever happen to him because 
as we know from the very beginning, he's now on trial for murder. But he actually did an extremely sympathetic thing, and he proved himself a true friend. And so that's where the paradox comes in, and that's what makes it just so heart-wrenching of a novel. The thing I loved about it is it's so specifically from that time. It's kind of like an episode of television. Like People would consume these quickly and not necessarily be dissecting them or even talking about them as much as you and I are talking about them. They were really meant to just be enjoyed immediately and then move on. And I think because of its simplicity and because of its good, stark, bare bones, it has stood the test of time. There's nothing to date it, really. It is this elemental battle between them and time and to keep on their feet. And it's about all the predators who circle around them and all their hopes and the different gimmicks that the promoters do to try to get people to come and see them. They have producers who they introduce to the crowd. And then two of the dancers end up getting married while they're dancing in the ballroom. And so the wedding is a big, you know, they can sell tickets to that. And it's a big deal. And then the different characters, all of whom are desperate in different ways, and some of whom are veterans of other marathons. They basically travel the country entering these marathons because they don't have any other skills. They have wanderlust, and that's what they do to make a living. But boy, it's very hard on your body. It's such a dark book. But thank you so much for (laughs) introducing me to it. I did not know about these dance marathons, and I'm frankly amazed that nobody has made a dance marathon reality show. Oh, yeah. But you know what? They did make a movie of They Shoot Horses, don't they? I was going to ask you if you've seen the movie. I've seen parts of it, but we couldn't get it to stream. Well, there was a streaming version, but it wasn't very good resolution. So next time it comes to the New Beverly or somewhere, I'm going to go out to an actual theater and see it. But Jane Fonda played Gloria. And I think Michael Saracens played the guy. I think it was made in the 60s or early 70s, and it's supposed to be really good and devastating. I really want to see it. But yeah, dance marathons, I guess, have kind of gone out of style. But something like that, yeah, is definitely fodder for reality TV. I want to point out that you just casually mentioned like, oh, the next time it comes to the New Beverly or somewhere, we'll go watch it. One of the great things about living in Los Angeles is any movie you can think of, if you want to see it in a theater... You only have to wait a few months. They're all in theaters all the time. You can go see Lawrence of Arabia and 70 millimeter basically anytime. That's one thing I love coming from New York that just didn't really exist. But yeah, the fact that this somewhat obscure movie from the 1970s based on a book from 1935 would be in a theater in the near future is totally plausible. We're a bunch of film buffs here. Next week, we'll be back with Denise Hamilton, Los Angeles' favorite crime writer. We'll be talking more about Los Angeles and about her new project, Speculative LA, which is a collection of short stories. Writers from Los Angeles or writers from other places writing about Los Angeles. This conversation with Denise Hamilton was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair, which is the best place in the country to go hear conversations like this, conversations with interesting people about books and about ideas and about all kinds of cool stuff. So you can find more about the Miami Book Fair at miamibookfair.com. All their socials are Miami Book Fair. You can also click a link in the description of this podcast, go right to their website. Thanks, Miami Book Fair. This was really fun. There is one place to find all the information you want about the Book Society podcast, and that is at booksocietypod.com. We have a website, links to old episodes, schedules for upcoming episodes, credits, all kinds of fun stuff. So booksocietypod.com.
There's not a whole lot of crime in it. <laughs> well, I think as a crime novelist, you might have a uh, slanted view of how much not a lot of crime is. Because <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely three murders in the book, and it's only 100 pages long. <laughs> 